0: Hello, everybody. What a fantastic crowd we have here tonight. Welcome to you all. Welcome to tonight's Sydney Ideas event. It's always beautiful to share our real estate, our lovely Great Hall, which is showing off quite spectacularly tonight. And it's, it's lovely to see so many of you here from across such different backgrounds, both within the university and more broadly. Sydney Ideas is a conversation that the university sponsors across key issues that are of interest in public policy uh, issues that arise from our research and issues that we as a university community like to engage with the broader public about tonight we're honored to have a real leader and a lion or lioness maybe um, in many ways uh, in the australian community in liz broderick Uh, liz is going to provide the keynote address on the issue of women in leadership why are we not there yet which i think is a pretty critical issue given that we have been talking about this issue for very, very many decades. After Liz speaks, we're going to have the opportunity for some of my colleagues and some of our students to have uh, a question and answer panel, Uh, and then you'll have the opportunity as the um, audience to ask questions of our panel as well. Before we go too much further on, I would like to welcome my colleague, uh, Deputy uh, Vice-Chancellor, Indigenous Strategy and Services, Professor Shane Houston, to come and provide an acknowledgement of country for us. Thank you, Shane.
1: Good evening, family. I am um, always a bit chuffed to be asked to undertake the acknowledgement of country. You know, too often people think that this is something that is just one of those things you wear on your sleeve, you get it over and done with and it's out of the way and you get on with the real business of the evening. But Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have had ceremony to welcome visitors to our country, to give them safe passage, to prepare them well for the journey and to send them away with best wishes for tens of thousands of years. You know, in Kakadu they've uncovered a site that has uh, revealed the site of oldest human habitation in the world and it's dated at 65,000 years. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been extending these acknowledgements, these welcomes for that long and according to our custom much, much longer. In a building like this it might be difficult to see how Aboriginal ceremony might be relevant Um, but if you look up at that magnificent ceiling and you think that those timbers came from the Bunjilung territory on the north coast of new south wales if you gaze down at the marble floor and remember that that floor came from gandangara country in the southwest of new uh, southwest of sydney and if you look at the sandstone that make the walls of this magnificent building and know that that sandstone came from Wongal and gadigal country you start to get a different perspective of a welcome to country or an acknowledgement of country in an august institution like this. The land on which this campus stands is replete with Aboriginal tradition and memory. Sorry camps were held to the west in Glebe. Education camps were held in the east down in what is now Victoria Park. The Mizidan Road Ridge is a monitor, it is a lizard that broadly represents the boundary between Wongal and Gadigal country. The university stands on land that is rich in Aboriginal history, tradition and culture. It is only fitting then that we acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and we respect their traditions and we welcome their continuing support of our, of our function of growing the next generations and of educating our young people for the future. Thank you very much.
0: I forgot to say one very important thing as I started. Those of you who know me well know that I spend far too much of my time on social media. Uh, We have a hashtag tonight, which is hashtag women in leadership. Uh, We also have uh, a number of the people who you know, who are here, um, who are also uh, active social media engagers, such as uh, Elizabeth Broderick herself, who we'll explain what her uh, handle is when she stands up here. But if you'd like to share with all of those jealous people who couldn't come along this evening, what's going on tonight, uh, feel free to do it uh, on Twitter um, or on other social media at hashtag women in leadership. Before I sit down and listen to our keynote address uh, for this evening, it's my great pleasure to introduce Sarah Watts. Uh, Sarah Watts is our first uh, vice principal operations and commenced at the university just over a year ago. Uh, Sarah has responsibility for just about everything in the university from what I can see from this list, um, which are all sorts of things which make our university run in terms of operations and infrastructure. Uh, Sarah had an illustrious career in business before joining us here at the University of Sydney, um, including 28 years at IBM, both in Australia and internationally. Um, It's my pleasure to welcome her and she's going to introduce Liz Broderick, um, who's going to provide our address. Thank you, Sarah.
2: Thank you, Associate Professor Cooper. Welcome to the University of Sydney. We are proud to be hosting this important public conversation tonight. Gender equality is a topic that generates much interest, discussion and argument and is of great interest to the Australian community, as evidenced by the more than 700 people who registered for this evening's event. Over the next couple of hours, I expect that the combination of personal insight and panel discussion will provoke encourage, challenge and perhaps cajole you into thinking differently about how to address the issue of gender imbalance in leadership. As members of society, of communities, of families and as individuals, we have the opportunity to make a difference to the number of women in decision-making roles across Australia. Here at the University of Sydney, we have a highly diverse student and staff population under whichever diversity lens you apply. However, our own leadership team doesn't reflect that level of diversity. Over the past two years, and led by our Vice-Chancellor, Dr. Michael Spence, we have been engaging in a range of activities specifically designed to address that imbalance. We are beginning to see signs of traction. And while we have a long way to go, events like this one are a demonstration of our commitment to this change. Tonight, Elizabeth Broderick will share some of her personal insights, expertise and experience from her time as Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner. Elizabeth Broderick was appointed for a five-year term in September 2007 and had her term extended to September 2015. In addition, she was also the Commissioner responsible for age discrimination, or hopefully not age discrimination, from September 2007 through July 2011. During her term, she was committed to improving gender equality through her advocacy in preventing violence and sexual harassment against women, improving lifetime economic security for women, balancing paid work and unpaid caring responsibilities, promoting women's representation in leadership, and strengthening gender equality laws and agencies. Elizabeth is global co-chair of the Women's Empowerment Principles Leadership Group, a joint initiative of the United Nations Global Compact and United Nations Women, UN Women a member of the World Bank's Advisory Council on Gender Development, partner co-director with NATO on Women, Peace and Security, and a member of the Australian Defence Force Gender Equality Advisory Board. In addition, she is ambassador for the foundation to prevent violence against women and their children, and the overall winner of the 100 Women of Influence Awards for 2014. Elizabeth is a recipient of two honorary doctorates in laws, one from the University of Sydney and the other from the University of Technology. I think it's fair to say that over the past eight years, Elizabeth has made a significant contribution to the Australian and global debate on gender equality. Through engaging Australians from all walks of life in challenging and inspirational conversations and encouraging actions that accelerate progress, she has moved our country closer towards the creation of an environment in which all Australians thrive. Please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Broderick to the stage.
3: Thank you very much, Sarah, for such a warm and generous introduction and congratulations on all the work that you have done here at the University of Sydney to promote a more gender equal university. I also want to thank Ray, who I've worked with for several years now on your work as well, Ray, and particularly through the Women Work and Research Group. Um, and thank you Shane for your uplifting and informative welcome to country. One of the great joys of my role as Australia's sex discrimination commissioner was to really um, spend time with Indigenous Australians, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, Australians who've demanded equality for so many years. So I want to also um, acknowledge that we are meeting here on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and to pay my respects and thank you. Uh, those people for their custodianship of the land. It's a bit spooky seeing yourself up there actually um, staring down. I'm glad to say I've got more than one outfit. I often come into a room and they have a photo and I'm wearing exactly the same thing but you're lucky you've got me in something different today. Um, But it's really wonderful to be here at the University of Sydney, a place that I hold a great affection for. It's a place that's been so very important in the lives of many Australians, but indeed also in my own family. Uh, My twin sister who joins me here tonight being a professor uh, here at the University of Sydney, and a place that's headed by a wonderful leadership team that I greatly respect. Belinda Hutchinson, who you may know as the Chancellor of the University of Sydney, has been a strong supporter of gender equality and advancing advancing the careers of women, not just here at the university, but in corporate Australia for many years. And more recently, I've been connected with Michael Spence, uh, the Vice-Chancellor, whom I've come to know quite well with the Male Champions of Change group. And although I know the name champions of change does not always sit comfortably with Michael and indeed with many of the men because let's face it we are all imperfect role models but there's no doubt that Michael has a strong commitment to gender equality. I have observed it, Uh, he has really set about accelerating female leadership within the university to changing the cultural attitudes and systems that have long constrained women. So, so far as I'm concerned, he is a champion of change and is a courageous leader and it's been a great pleasure to work with him over the last couple of years. I have to say, I've been really impressed by the progress that the university is making and has made over the last couple of years. Um, To see the appointment of Sarah and also Fiona Krautel to drive the gender diversity strategy, to see the adoption of targeted programs for women when they're applying for promotion, the participation in the Athena Swan um, pilot, which will accelerate women in STEM disciplines, um, the university stepping up and being one of the first to survey their students on sexual harassment and sexual assault. These are really important strategies. And I'm not sure whether you saw the um, data that was released by Harvard just a few days ago about the incidence of sexual assault on university campuses. The fact is that we need to understand these hard truths, understand what's occurring in our universities, and start to step up um, and create change. And that's very much what I've seen the University of Sydney do over the last couple of years. Not only that, you have some of the best research capability here at the university. If I look at the Department of Gender Studies in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, the Women and Work Research Group, the Business School, you're changing our understanding of how gender shapes knowledge and everyday experience. And indeed, in my role as Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner, I relied on research from the University of Sydney most weeks but I also imagine that the gap between your global contribution to progressing gender equality externally and the lack of gender balance, particularly at senior levels internally, must at times feel uncomfortable. The world is rapidly changing. There can be no legitimate conversation without the voices of women. And I understand that there are many of you at the university who believe that some of the current attitudes towards women are preventing the institution from achieving its best, that the culture is one where women still are not able to thrive to the same extent as men, that the proportion of women in leadership roles across the university does not reflect women's representation more generally in society, within our student body, or indeed within our nation. So today, what I've been asked to do is to share some of the thoughts that I have about accelerating reform so that together we might identify some ideas for the future. And as Sarah said, three weeks ago I stepped down as Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner after eight years. uh, I figured if I'd stayed an extra week I would have had six Prime Ministers in eight years. That's not bad going. Um, But indeed, it was a time of transition, or it is a time of transition, a time when you look back and reflect on the path that you've taken. And I have to say, even in those three weeks, there's been a few interesting moments. I've realised that logistics are not really my forte. I found myself going to Melbourne to speak at an event the other night, and when I looked at the uh, ticket and the invitation, I realised I was going on the RSVP date rather than the date of the event. But having said that, part of looking back and reflecting uh, is recognising that experience teaches us something, that experience teaches us to make better decisions for the future. And what I've come to understand in my role as Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner is that we often have before us some breathtaking opportunities that are disguised as insoluble problems. And I know that's also the case here at the University of Sydney. But the first thing I would say is that the university is not alone in its challenge to accelerate women's leadership. There is continued underrepresentation of women at decision-making level in so many areas in our nation, whether I'm looking in community sector, in business, in boardrooms, or indeed in the parliament. The situation also exists in Australia's Defence Force, where I have done a lot of work over my eight years, and I have to say it was one of the great privileges of the work that I did to work with the Australian Defence Force. And many of you will say, well, um, what do these organisations have in common with a university? Well, I'm here to tell you that there is much that is in common. The fact is that the same cultural constraints that exist in all these organisations exist to a greater or lesser extent in an organisation like the University of Sydney. It's likely then that the solutions that these organisations have in place, some of which are quite disruptive, that those approaches that take the call for action directly to the heart of power will also uh, have some relevance to a university setting. So here are some of the things that I learnt over the last eight years that you may find valuable as part of a university community. The first thing I learnt is that gender equality is not a battle of the sexes. It's a battle for equality, a battle that women and men must wage side by side. The fact is the empowerment of women is about the empowerment of humanity. And the systems that exist in a university setting are like systems in many other institutions. They're deeply embedded in a male life trajectory, a male way of being. I don't make any judgment about that. That's just the history of universities, it's the history of militaries, it's the history of many organisations in corporate Australia. And the fact is that that history has stood the university in very good stead for many years. But in the future, this must change. And to change the systems that hold women back, we need courageous, decent men to step up. As one of my male champions says, he says, "'Men invented the system. Men largely run the system. Men need to change the system.'" And that's what the Male Champions of Change strategy has been all about. It's about men using their power to change the system in a very short space of time. And I often hear about the many gifted male leaders that work within the university, and it's great to see so many men in the audience tonight. My work with male leaders across Australia has taught me much. The men leading gender diversity strategies They have a leadership style that is public, courageous and exposed. Their leadership is about seeking to understand, listening to women, thinking it through, and while many may consider the soft-hearted reasons to change, for most of them, they also acknowledge the hard-headed reasons why institutions like this one needs to change. The men that are leading gender equality initiatives they recognise that the status quo is no longer the place to be. They have a visible commitment to change, just like the Vice-Chancellor of this university does. They set targets because that crystallises intent. They make those targets public. They ensure addressing gender diversity is part of a business strategy. They invest energy and capital through planned intervention. They learn about the interventions that work and those that don't and then they course correct and start the cycle all over again. They never lose sight of a goal and they don't give up when it's hard as Andy Penn, who's the new CEO of Telstra, who you may know, who took over from David Thodey, he said in his LinkedIn post on this topic yesterday, he said, men need to be bold, courageous and visible in standing with women to create the change we need in gender equality. He goes on to say, you can count me in. These men also listen And I just want to give you an example of that because I think when we listen, we learn. You'll know that back in 2011, I was called in to look at the treatment of women in Australian Defence Force. It was on the back of what we call the Skype incident, an incident that happened in the Tri-Service Military Academy, an incident that involved a male and a female cadet having consensual sex in one of the residential colleges. What she didn't appreciate was that that was being Skyped to some of his mates in a nearby room. And my brief was to see whether or not this was a question of university students having, behaving badly, for students behaving badly, or was it something more sinister? Was it the marginalisation and sexualisation of women in Australia's military? And I travelled to many military bases. I've now been over 60 military bases, from submarines to Black Hawks to... Um, all type of military environments and when women heard I was coming on base they asked to see me one-on-one. Now many of them had stories that were very supportive of the Australian Defence Force stories about how the organisation had supported them very well over childbearing had allowed them to come back up into the environment and step up their careers but on occasions I heard deeply distressing stories stories that had never been told before. And that's when it occurred to me that whilst it was important for me to hear the stories, what was more important was that those men who had power to create change in the system heard the stories. So I flew in women from all over Australia. I asked them to bring support people, uh, support person. Many of them chose to bring their mothers. Just so the chiefs of each of the services, the chiefs of Army, Air Force, Navy, the vice chief. The Chief of the Defence Force could sit down and hear from people who loved the military as much as they do, but for whom service had come at an unacceptable personal cost. And indeed, the Chiefs heard about extreme exclusion what it's like to go and exercise for four months when no one speaks to you, what it's like to be sexually assaulted by your instructor, the very person you're going to for advice what it's like to have your career ruined because you had the courage to speak out. And I'll certainly never forget the first face-to-face session. The chief sitting uncomfortably in his chair, the mother nervously escorting her daughter into the room. I'm sitting over here thinking uh, this was a good idea when we dreamt it up, but these conversations are not that easy to have. And it was that courageous young woman. She turned to the chief and she said, "'Sir,' I am so nervous and he looked at her and he said you know what I'm scared too and I just thought if your chief of army can admit that he's fearful about what is about to be here hurt here we have a chance at change because it does take a courageous and compassionate military leader to do that and a courageous young woman to step up and tell her story. But what that those sessions taught me, and there are now around seven hundred of those sessions running across Australia's military through the DART process, but what that taught me was that when an insider feels exclusion's unwelcome consequence, that's when we start to plant the seeds of inclusion. So that's why listening to learn is just so very important. Which brings me to my next learning, and that is I have learnt that if you don't actively and intentionally include women, the system will unintentionally exclude them. And the reason for that is nearly every institution in this country is deeply rooted in that male way of being. So the idea that we just pour in a few women and stir... That will never work. That's why embracing targets is just so important, particularly targets with teeth. It doesn't matter what the target is, it's the act of agreeing on the target and making it public that matters. And just for the record, targets and merit are not mutually exclusive. Indeed, I believe that targets are necessary for women's merit to be revealed. The third thing I learnt is that progress comes in countless small intentional steps, not one giant leap Um, and you must persist because shaping a gender equal future is a journey characterised by persistence. There will be times of immense optimism when your disruptive strategies are delivering but on occasion you'll encounter moments where you lose faith in the possibility of change and you begin to think that women's leadership must remain as it always has. You begin to doubt yourself and the course you're pursuing. My advice at that point is embrace your self-doubt because doubt is a trait that bestows humility, that keeps you searching for the best solutions. But never lose your belief In the importance of female leadership because belief keeps you focused on the outcome, helps you can convince others to get on board. I am absolutely optimistic that each of you will be able to move the dial in your own faculty, your own department, your own operational area because the fourth thing I learned is and some of you may be thinking as I say that that it's only those with formal leadership duties that can actually create change. You don't have to have the word leader or manager in your title. You don't even have to be extraordinary to create influence. That's what I learnt. I certainly wasn't. And as one woman in the United Nations told me just a few months ago when we were discussing how you create change, she said she did what she could when she could. That's how she changed the world. And I think that simple concept gives me confidence and energy. The fact is that ideas to disrupt the status quo can come from anywhere in the organisation. They can come top down from a leadership team. They can come bottom up from the front line and everywhere in between. We can all have influence one way or another. Students, staff, alumni and partners, together we can have influence. The fifth thing I learnt was that not all women start from the same position and Michael's really been a strong advocate for this. When you look at female leadership across the university, be wary of averages, of presenting a uniform picture and therefore proposing a one size fits all solution. The fact is, and as many women, particularly from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, women with disabilities, they tell me, Liz, we represent the minority of the minority. Inequality will affect those who have less power to a greater degree. So take the experience of women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds for whom gender and cultural background intersect That compounds the barriers that those women face in attaining equality and stepping up into leadership roles. It's really important to acknowledge this when setting targets for female leadership. Now, there are many actions that I could talk about today, and I'm just going to finish now with one. Um, There are actions that I could talk about, particularly focusing on men in care, about supporting younger women and children, Uh, across childbearing to ensure women are retained by the university can step up into leadership roles. But today, I'd like to talk about sponsorship because sponsorship will be critical in accelerating female leadership within the university. The research is very clear. Women are over-mentored and under-sponsored. You'll remember mentoring is talking to a person sponsorship is talking about them in environments that deliver opportunities. And what the research tells us is that one of the most significant variables that explains the difference between men and women's progression is that men have more powerful sponsors who advocate on their behalf, who fight for them to advance in the organization and work to get them the jobs that create the experiences that matter. Now, don't get me wrong, Women have a lot of benevolent advice givers. But when it comes to powerful sponsors willing to use their network to create opportunity, the research says that leaders disproportionately bestow that advocacy on their male colleagues. So let me give you an example of how sponsorship has delivered results in one organisation and here I'll return once again to the military, indeed to the Australian Army. You may know Lieutenant General David Morrison, I think he's giving a speech here in the next month. Uh, but he realised that relying on the current talent pipeline within the army to deliver increased numbers of women into leadership positions was never going to work. Indeed, I helped him see that in the last 20 years they'd only increased the number of women in the military by 0.2%. So he needed innovation and sponsorship so what did he, he and his team do? Well, basically, the army called up every good woman who'd left the force in the recent past and asked them to return. His team got creative to make the job more attractive. Uh, he made it possible for women to exert more control over their posting location. He was flexible on the length of uh, service commitment, what they call the ROSO, the return of service obligation. He talked to the women about the level of sponsorship The army would provide about their confidence that these women would successfully step up into commanding officer roles and the result well the army has had their best two years ever in women's recruitment uh, having almost doubled the number of women recruited and not only that through their sponsorship they've passed the 20 percent level in their officer staff college uh, that being the entry point for executive leadership In fact, this year, despite the fact that the um, women make up 12% of the army, indeed this is last year's figures, 12% of the army, they've been promoted at the rate of 25% into commanding officer positions. They now have the potential to create critical mass in a way that was never imagined. It is critical mass that will create cultural change, not the other way round. So just in conclusion then, in the short time that we've had together, I hope I've been able to give you a sense of how leaders both within but outside the university also have found some innovative solutions that have inspired you to go out and find yours. I can't imagine the University of Sydney putting anything in the too hard basket, but I would suggest that because of your exceptional ability to define and analyse complex problems, to perform root cause analyses analyses that you sometimes have a tendency to keep talking when what's required is action. For change to happen, you must disrupt the status quo. In the same way as digital disruption is revolutionising our world, there's a need to search relentlessly for better solutions to gender diversity and inclusion. Now, I know that there are many that are sitting in this room today who have been highly successful operating in a male-dominated culture, because that's the history of most high-performing organisations, organisations like the University of Sydney, organisations that I greatly admire. So you might still be wondering, but wait a tick, I still don't get it. Why do we need to change? Well, for most of us, we see the world as we are rather than as it is. And in these instances, we may convince ourselves that gender equality is just not that important. Whilst we're entitled to our own opinions, we're not entitled to our own facts And the facts based on the university's own rigorously collected data disclose that 55% of PhD graduates from the university are female, but women represent only 28% of those at professorial level. The facts disclose that there's still some faculties with no female professors. The facts disclose that there continues to be a gender pay gap where women at the university earn less than men in certain areas. The facts disclose uh, that on average women are promoted at a slower rate than men and indeed you'll soon have the facts around the the higher rates of sexual harassment and sexual assault that women face than men. But here's another fact. 50% of the talent in nations resides in women. Women. If we want to attract and retain the best talent, we need environments where both men and women can thrive. That's why we need to change. Progressing women's leadership cannot sit on the shoulders of women alone. If there's any university in the world capable of addressing the issue head on for itself and for other universities, it has to be the University of Sydney, one of the most highly ranked universities in Australia and in the top 0.3% worldwide. Each of you gathered here tonight represent an elite group of thinkers and problem solvers. Your ideas and knowledge have reshaped thinking around the world in medicine, in law, in economics and gender studies to name a few. You have reimagined societies. What's to stop you once again thinking big for the university, stepping up and taking the lead in creating a more gender-equal organisation, a more gender-equal future, a future that benefits not only you, but your nation, your economy, your sisters and your daughters. The change, it starts with you. Thank you.
0: I love a call to action. Thank you, Liz. I think you've showed us uh, just now uh, why you've been able to really so significantly impact on the public debate and to really bring women's work and broader lives into the you know the public discourse about the things that are very very important and very very dear to many of us here. So, what we're going to do now is um, have a panel of uh, two colleagues uh, and two of our wonderful students come up and join Liz, um, and we're going to have uh, a bit of a facilitated discussion uh, by me, and then you're going to have the opportunity to ask some questions of our panellists um, and Liz as well. So, I'm going to... Uh, I haven't actually rehearsed this with all of you, but I'm going to read your bios, and you're going to walk seamlessly up and sit on the white couch. The first person who we've already seen um, in action tonight is Professor Shane Houston. Uh, who's the DVC Indigenous Strategy and Services? Uh, those of you who know Shane uh, since he's been here at the university in the last uh, four years, I think Shane um, is—he uh, has had a, a pretty significant impact upon our strategy in relation to a- a- Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander students and staff, and is driving our institution-wide strategy in that area. So, welcome to you, Shane. Um, Our next uh, colleague, who I'm going to welcome, is my friend, Associate Professor Renee Ryan uh, from the Sydney University Medical School. Um, uh, Renee has been here at the University of Sydney uh, since... How long have you been here? Since 2010. You graduated with your PhD in 2004. I was going to say, how is it possible you're an Associate Professor if you've only been here for a couple of years? Um, She's had quite an illustrious career in the area that she researches in neuropharmacology, which sounds pretty sexy. Um, and she's worked both in um, some of the leading US universities, such as uh, Columbia, um, before returning home here. Now, um, in terms of her work here at home, uh, Renee is the chair of, her, of the Gender Equality Committee and the Early Career Research Network in the Sydney Medical School. So making a really big difference and heeding that call to action that Liz uh, has given us. Nina Currie is one of our students at the University of Sydney Business School who we're very proud of, um, not only because she's an excellent student but because she's led the way in terms of organising women's um, work, uh, women's representation uh, among the student body within the school. She's the president of the National Organisation of Women, which is a Sydney University business society aiming at empowering uh, young women to achieve their business aspirations. And finally, sorry, Dalton, to keep you waiting for so long, Dalton Fogarty is also a business school graduate. Uh, We haven't stacked it, I've got to tell you. Uh, But he's currently also studying in the law school, having already achieved his Bachelor of Commerce uh, in the University of Sydney Business School. um, Dalton is also a fellow of Senate, elected uh, by undergraduate students to represent them on our governing body. So welcome to all of you. Now, if I can start, thank you, insert clap here, yes. Um, if I can start with um, uh, one uh, question that I think I might get Liz to lead off on, if mm. that's all right, Liz, yeah. um, and that is in relation to the issue of uh, women in education, and this is something that those of us who are educators get quite excited about, and that is that we have such a highly educated female labour force, mm. the most highly educated female labour force that we, in, in the world, uh, the most highly educated female labour force that we've had in our history in Australia. Um, something that we should be very proud of and I wonder if you see any uh, lessons I suppose from our education experience uh, for the broader uh, a broader sense of women being able to achieve their destinies or their ambitions um, in their broader life um, in terms of work or leadership.
3: Yeah thanks very much Ray. Um, You're right we're number one with Finland I think and a number of other countries in terms of women's educational attainment I mean there's some exceptions to that in more marginalised Female populations, but but by and large that's the case. Interestingly, we thought education would be the window through which women entered the working world on an equal footing with men. And that, interestingly, hasn't materialised to the extent that we would have wanted it to. I think we thought if we gave women an education and some health care, that they would um, naturally just trickle up to the Mm. most senior levels of every discipline that we have. And that hasn't necessarily happened. And it's interesting because a couple of months ago, I was in the United Nations, and we were looking at how far the world's travelled over the last 20 years. Women's education, most countries had done quite well. In fact, we now know that there's many girls as boys in primary school across the world, so 250 million additional um, coming in as a result of the Millennium Development Goals. Um, we're better on maternal health. But where we as the world haven't progressed is really on women's proximity to economic power, Mm. which is about women at work. So it's telling us that the strategies that used us to get better education are not necessarily the strategies that'll get us um, closer to power within um, paid work. And that's why as I was sitting there listening to this summation, I started to understand that what we're going to need is some new and different strategies. We need some disruptive strategies and that's why the male champions of change is one example of that. That's a strategy recognising where power sits in nations and working with power to create change. So I think we can learn some things from the great work that's happened in women's education but we wouldn't want to be constrained by that. We need some new and disruptive strategies.
0: Thank you. Nina, did you want to have a, a go at that yeah, question too? Um,
4: almost to echo what this has just said, I think when I heard this, it kind of saddens me that when we're still having this discussion about the lack of women in leadership. So I look at that and to me, education is everything. I love Sydney University and it's given me the opportunity to speak here today. And I'm now looking at those opportunities and maybe that's what women need to take advantage of. We need to be going to events, we need to be talking to people and we need to be furthering this discussion. So I look at that statement and think, maybe it's not just the technical skills we gain at university. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure I'm going to value the real property knowledge I am gaining this semester. (laughs) But I think moving forward into leadership, it is furthering our network abilities, our social capital, and maybe it is the disruptive strategies that we need to enact.
0: Mm, Okay, Thanks. So I think Liz has talked through a little bit about what some of the implications are of the lack of um, you know, real diversity in terms of gender in senior and strategic roles within our organisations. But I wonder if you might reflect, panellists, upon what you think that means for business, what you think it means for organisations, and more broadly, what you think it means for community. And I thought we might start with Renee, uh, with your expertise in the STEM area.
5: Yeah, thanks, Ray. So um, I think uh, I'm a medical researcher and so my background is science in the M areas, which is science, technology, um, engineering, maths and medicine. And there definitely is a real blockage of women at senior levels. I think at least in the medical sciences we have more um, women at the PhD level and even at the postdoctoral level, but once we get up to professorial level it's about 20%. And I think that this does impact young women, so especially um, the early career researchers and mid-career researchers, so women that are thinking about having children or having children themselves, and when they don't have a lot of, you know, role models and can't see a lot of women that are making it to the top, it does affect the ability for them to, to imagine themselves in those positions. And I think it also comes back to sponsorship that Liz mentioned, um, and I think there's evidence that shows that people, and it's human nature, we like to sponsor people that remind us of ourselves. And so if we only have, you know, a fifth of the kind of leadership group up there that are women, you know, I think that there is this um, perpetuation that this, you know, the the white male kind of gets sponsored by other senior white males. And so it's also about gender diversity, but also cultural diversity is something that we really need um, to instil in the the leadership group. And I think that hopefully that will follow on with sponsorship and things. So there's, there's a lot of things that the university's doing and also the, the national funding bodies, the NHMRC and ARC, the research funding bodies, to try and address um, women taking time out from their careers um, to have children. Um, but I think the um, understanding the impact that has on women is a bit different and it's a bit harder to judge for all of us mm-hmm. Um So that's something that, you know, the way we judge researchers and academics is very much on how many papers you get, how many grants you get, your international profile. So being able to travel is a very important part of being an academic. And when you've got young children, you just can't do that. So I think we need to try and change the way that we we judge success for our academics, and, Mm. and that will also lead to, you know, allowing more women to move through the system and move into those senior roles. Thanks,
0: Renee. Dalton, what do you think in terms of women's underrepresentation? What does that mean for organisations? What does it mean for community and society as well?
6: Yeah, so so I think um, so, white, young male. So I'm <laughs> I'm quite sort of advantaged by everything. Um, but but <laughs> <laughs> uh, <Sorry. laughs> no no. But it, it is quite important to actually get that education across to people from my background. I think because there is this level of assuming that what I see and what benefits that I accrue happen to everyone else. Mm -hmm. And really getting that discourse going and actually having a lot of um, people in my position realizing that actually, no, it's not like that. We're at the pinnacle and that there needs to be big changes at the systematic level. Um, That's quite key to actually achieving um, real pressing issues. I mean, the main thing, so I was at the Male Champions of Change event via Senate invite. um, And a lot of the policies and things that I saw, some of the leading companies do, for example, Telstra, Mm. very, very powerful in the sense that it's more about changing the entire discussion from talking about oh flexible work for um, women who want to look after their families to to a discussion of we should have flexible work, full stop. Mm. And those that actually want to use that are therefore not discriminated against because there is no implicit, oh, well, you're just doing that because that's your traditional gender role. And I think... That's the key to actual real change, but that coupled with education, it helps inform um, the pipeline of, of graduates um, and students such as myself. Uh, yeah.
3: Thanks, Lise, Did you want to? And I it? agree hundred percent with that. But what if we don't have women coming up in the numbers that they should into, you know, different senior roles and paid work generally, um, then we're missing the creativity and talent of 50% of the population. Are we prepared to put that to one side largely on the basis of gender? Because what we do know from a lot of the good research out of University of Sydney is that when we bring women into a male-dominated environment or indeed men into a female-dominated environment, what happens is that the group dynamics change and everyone lifts. So what we're um, missing out on when we don't have more women at different levels is we're missing out on capability benefits, what's called the diversity dividend, so better performance, all those things. We, we're really not allowing our nation to be the strong nation that we could be. I think that's what we're missing out on.
0: Okay,
3: as well as women's expectations for their own lives. Because, you know, they come through universities like this, not just for fun, but because they want to create a life for themselves where they have economic power, where they can be curious about the world and learn and where their skills can be put to some kind of productive use. Mm. Um, And that's what we're missing as well. Okay, Nina, that might be a good segue to you.
2: Yeah,
4: I think... I'd just like to echo everyone's thoughts. I think there's two main issues with the impact this has. Firstly, it's girls and boys looking on their screens and seeing a lack of female representation in leadership. I know as a young girl, if you are watching the TV and you see a male CEO, a male prime minister, a male dominant parliament. So I look at that and that creates the gender norms. You then have an expectation of maybe leadership traits are associated with being male. So I think we really have to socialize and educate at a younger level. But then, additionally, I now know in my age and looking into the leadership kind of roles at what barriers am I going to face. And I look and see, well, I'm only going to go to an organisation that promotes flexibility. And I would hope to think that organisations can look and if they want to retain and attract the best talent, then they are going to need to promote flexibility and the acceptance of males taking paternity leave. So I then think the other impact is, as you've said, the lack of a 50% equal representation in society but the lack of female participation. Our voices aren't being heard and I think until we have that cross representation then we're not going to get the best outcomes.
0: Thanks Nina. Shane, what do you think?
1: Um, Look, I I don't disagree with the points that have been made but I'd say this. (coughs) I absolutely agree with Elizabeth. Half of the best minds and half of the best hearts are in women in our society so we have to think about how we seize the opportunity to bring their talents to the table, absolutely. And I like the point that Elizabeth made about disruption because too often we can think that simply um, taking a silver bullet approach and saying let's increase the numbers is in itself sufficient to guarantee the sort of results that we all hope for. There is a real question about how we change the culture of an organisation and how we appreciate... the the, what happens to women when they're in our institutions. And Elizabeth mentioned the Millennium Goals. And it's really interesting. It's some great work by Melanie Walker and others in the UK. And she reminds us that even though some African sub-Saharan African countries are amongst the few in the world that have reached parity in respect of girls in schools, Mm -hmm. when you go in and you look at what's going on for those girls in their school in that school they're still sitting at the back of the classroom mm. they're still not engaged in the education process the approach by the male teachers is always to serve mm. the interests of the boys sitting at the front of the class so even though the numbers are equal mm. the women are not getting the benefit of the education mm. so our our culture we have to think about our culture and we have to actually think about what happens to women when they join our institutions? And we need to be disruptive to make sure that we proactively change the culture of those institutions. And it's not people outside that can do that. It has to be people inside that can do that. And that's why the sort of strategies that we've been putting together at the university is so important. It's us changing us. That's what's important.
0: So Shane, what would you see as a disruptor that, that we can put in place here?
1: Um, I think... I think I I would seriously want to find out. Um, I think we want to take a deeper dive into some of the challenges that that women face in the culture of large, complex organisations, not just the university. I've worked in health sectors for the last 25 years, hospitals, community health services, they're all the same. You know, government departments, they're all the same. And we've got to ask people about what were the things that sapped their will to be proud, confident, engaged, women in this organisation and what were the things that enabled them to be proud, confident engaged women in this organisation and to actually then have the men go out and push those lines, create the space which enable women to not only make a choice but have the opportunity and the capability to act on that choice in a way that gives them a richer and more valuable life.
3: Because I think one, you know, just when you look at disruption, I mean, Telstra started it, ANZ, Westpac, a whole lot of them have now uh, adopted the same strategy, but all roles flex. It changes the starting point of work. So it assumes every role in the organisation is available as a flexible work arrangement. That's a given. So that moves the starting point from the ideal worker model you know, they're always available 24-7, to flexibility is the starting point. Now, what can we do with that? And just looking at Telstra's early results, they've had a 300% increase in the number of male managers taking primary parental leave. Mm. That starts to change who cares and who works. And they're the type of disruptive approaches, and I'm... Great to see that um, DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, even, you know, military and organisations are that saying, okay, well, how can we do something like that, if not exactly that, but that really disrupts all the assumptions that we hold about the way people work and puts the talent at the centre and the work then wraps around there. Mm -hmm. It's a total shift in the thinking and I think we need more of that thinking.
0: Okay. And so I guess one of the things we've had conversations about this, Liz, over the years uh, around uh, gender equality is the narratives that we give to what the problem is and how we fix it. And for a time, we actually had quite a narrative about fixing women. Mm. Uh, We've got to make women more confident. We have to make women board ready. We have to make women want ask to negotiate uh, for the corner office etc that kind of narrative i think we kind of moved a little towards a, a business case and perhaps mixing that with a bit of a human rights case as well but i wonder whether you think that um, those narratives particularly that fixing the women approach has worked or if any of the others have and if you see any promise in, in any other narratives is there something else we should be framing this in terms of in, in terms of the paradigm for understanding and the paradigm for trying to solve the problems we're facing I
3: mean, I absolutely unassumably think we need to fix the system, not the women. We women are okay as we are, It's my considered view. Um, actually, we're exceptional. Um, but no, I just think, look, I, and I see it all the time, Ray, when I go into organisations, well, look, we've got an extra mentoring program for women and we're teaching them to network more and we're giving them a more in-depth, um, you know, training in this and that. No, actually, what we need to do is fix and change the system because the whole logic behind diversity is that different people bring different skill sets, different ways of thinking, different life experiences. If we just try and turn women into men, firstly we'll never be as good men as men are but it undermines entirely the argument for diversity. So my focus and the focus I've had for the last eight years is to get people to step up and change the system, which is why I've tried to focus on power, Mm -hmm. because those who hold power can change the system more quickly and more easily than those who don't. And I I really think that's what the narrative needs to be. What do you think,
1: Shane? I absolutely agree. If if you look at the health health sector, health industry, Mm -hmm. majority of staff, nurses, um, allied health workers, women. And and what's interesting is that um, I've often seen in three jurisdictions now, Um, programs put on to fix women, to give them, you know, um, to fix women, and then they send them into an institution and say, no, no, go and change the world. (laughs) Now, if you're the most recent appointment at a junior level, um, you've got no hope in Hades of changing a teaching hospitals' behaviour towards women. I know ministers who couldn't change teaching hospitals' behaviour towards women. So we have to get to a stage, I think, where, where the organisational culture, the systems and policies of an organisation, the professional behaviours and approaches and the individual behaviours within those institutions fundamentally shift, hmm. fundamentally shift. And I know from the Aboriginal spaces hmm. that if we want to change the way um, in-groups, the majority, think about us, it's not us on the outside banging on the door saying, let us in, let us in, let us in. It's getting the leadership in the in-groups to establish new social norms and new ways of behaviour which are more responsive to the notion of inclusion. Mm. That's how you can make it happen. Mm. And unless you're willing to be that disruptive, unless you're willing to get hold of these and shape them, you're going to get suboptimal results.
5: OK. What do you think, Renee? Yeah, I mean, this just reminds me of... I mean, i set up a gender equity committee in the City Medical School, and, of course, that includes all the clinical schools and a lot of the um, academics work in hospitals, and a, a senior surgeon rang me up and said you know, why are you setting up this committee? We don't need a committee like this. We're gender neutral. Surgeons don't <laughs> look at, gender you know... Blind, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we don't look at gender when we're <laughs> appointing people, but women that have had time off are just never going to be as good as men. You know, that's the fact, you know. And it, it was really interesting, and I didn't get very far with him, but it was really interesting that he just, he just... You know, women will never be as good as men. If you take time out from being a surgeon, you'll never catch up. And, you know, I suggested to him, well, what about an acceleration program or, you know, trying to, you know, do something mm-hmm. to get women retrained and back up, and it's just like, no, it'll never work, you know? And we don't think about gender, but it just won't work. And I think that's the thing, is that, you know, they do think about gender, they just don't understand. And so you do have to have hugely disruptive, you know, kind of things, in, in, especially in the health sector and uh, that is linked very much to, to us in the, in the university, in the Sydney Medical School so mm. it's a whole another kettle of fish that we have to think about but it is It's, it's, it's really called important. being
3: gender blind I think Yes, rather right, than gender, gender neutral gender Blind, blind <laughs> we don't see gender um, yeah. but just on that, you know, one of the, probably one of the most um, influential things that the army did was women who took time out to have children um, were, when they came back in, provided they came back in within, I think, 18 months, back to the workforce, they did not lose one minute of seniority. They stayed with that cohort. And that has really shifted things. It shifted women's, you know desire to come back in to continue to operate it's that one thing and you can do it easily in the army you just sign a thing which says this is how it's going to be so it's not as easy for many other organizations but I have to say it was a really important shift
5: yeah no definitely and I think that's it is it there has to be more done with you know with women taking leave and again research is my area, but it 's you know losing momentum it 's not just about the time out it's, it's losing the momentum and there's so much more around and i 'm sure it's in many industries and many jobs you know it's 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 getting women back, I suppose, you know, and getting their momentum going as well or trying to stop it falling off while they're not there.
3: With a whole new skill set, let's face it, it's yeah. not like you're sitting home having a bit of a holiday. No, you no. Know, <laughs> you know. I'd prefer so to be at work. <laughs> we need to actually name those skills, recognise mm. what they are. I mean, I'm a better worker because I'm a mother, mm. you know, in th- that environment, so, mm. yeah.
0: Um, so I'm going to ask one more question before I throw to you to ask some questions, so I'll get you to start thinking now. Um, but I'm going to ask a question of Nina and Dalton. And that is, what do you think, as you know, young people, um, what, what do you think I, uh, are the keys, really, to your generation, um, who are coming through uh, our current students, what do you think are the keys to gender equality and for allowing women uh, of Nina's generation and your generation to um, succeed in the ways that they want to? Yeah.
4: Up to you, do you want to <laughs> go first. Okay, so, oh, no, no, no. in... thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Chivalry is not dead. Um, so I look at that and think, okay, what issues am I going to face and what structural barriers at this point in my career? And I'm looking and thinking, I want to have a family one day. And in doing so, I, I want to be a mum. And I know I'm going to face a situation in the workplace where I think the discussion I'm going to have to have with a partner I really hope to think that my partner will want to be a dad, will want to be a caregiver. And I hope to think that they... I think we need to challenge those assumptions and remove stigma of the male caregiver. As you just said, I hope to be a better person and a better worker for being a caregiver. So I think we need to place a greater value on the life side of things. And on that note, I'm really sick of the concept of this work-life balance. I think the fact is I have one life. And I want work to be a valuable and meaningful part of that. And if we keep talking about attaining this elusive balance, then I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. I think firms need to realize that work is part of life. It fits in, and we need to promote flexibility, and all credit to firms such as Telstra, because I know I look at that and think, I'd want to work there. So I think my advice to my generation would be to have this conversation with men, and I do have it with my male counterparts, And it still does sadden me when they say, but you realise I'm going to be working five days a week. So I think it's challenging those assumptions, removing stigma, and that would be the advice I'd give to my generation. Okay, thanks,
6: Nina. Dalton? Um, So from a young generation perspective, it's actually very bleak if you look into the future. I mean, we can't afford houses. Economic growth is pretty much like it's done. Um, There's no more growth left. Um, We've got an ageing demographic so that we're going to be working harder to pay for our parents and our grandparents. Um, So what's the answer? And I think the bottom line is actually getting gender equality right and accessing um, the effectiveness of women 50% 50% of the population is the answer to being able to do that. I mean, that's really the only way that you're going to be able to get the amount of economic growth that you need in the future, that something is, that something is sustainable. Um, and so I guess what, what I do as a young person and what I think everyone should be doing is making sure that this discourse continues very loudly because now as we, as the generation, start to move into a more economically powerful position in society, people will start to listen a lot more. And that, I think, is where we can make the biggest difference because uh, marketing companies, the way that they portray men and women, I mean, you've you've got uh, companies trying to attract talent. I mean, the marketplace for labor, even though we are competing with each other very harshly, Policies that give flexibility, if you want to have a family, will become more and more valuable. Um, And so, yeah, generally speaking, just make sure that the discourse doesn't die and that it gets louder.
0: Okay, thank you. So that means that we have a little bit of time now for you to ask questions. Um, Unfortunately, because it's a bit, I don't have someone running around with the mic. If you do have a question, can I ask you to approach the mic, which is in the middle of the hall there? Uh, It's kind of a first in, first served kind of situation. So line up if you get, oh, congratulations, you got there first. And, and when, um, whilst um, our colleagues are lining up to ask some questions, could I ask you all to get your phones out and start tweeting at, uh, what did we say it was, uh, women in leadership or at Liz Broderick or at Sydney Uni? And when you ask your question, could I please ask you to identify yourself uh, and where you're from and also to address the question at someone in particular or if it's the whole panel, say that it's the whole panel. Thank you. Hi guys, can you hear me? Okay, Um, my name's Michelle
7: Zabart. I'm an alumnus of Sydney University and I'm currently working at Accenture. Um, In my spare time, I'm actually starting up a podcast about students and entrepreneurialism. I think that what you've talked about tonight, um, Liz, you made a really good point that women are over-mentored and under-sponsored. Um, in my research to start up my podcast, I've found that the percentage of women who are starting up businesses in Australia is at about 16%. Now I've heard some really good strategies that Australia is promoting in big institutions like Sydney University and um, the military. and. Healthcare, but how do you think we can sponsor women who are trying to start their own business um, and try to go along that entrepreneurial journey? And um, what strategies and support can we lend to them?
0: Thank you, Michelle.
3: I'm happy to step up on that one because you're absolutely right. When we talk about this issue we shouldn't just be talking about the impact of women in large organizations. Um, There's women in small organizations, women who are entrepreneurs, um, the mumpreneurs who are working from their home as well, many of them. uh, I'm a (laughs) sidepreneur. Well that's fantastic and congratulations to you. But you're right, you will need sponsorship as well. Um, And that's about And and just just adding on to that, I've been really excited to see my kids are at a stage where they're starting to look at university, but the number of now new um, courses around entrepreneurial um, activity and and for women as well with a gender lens applied, so that's been really fantastic for me to see that. But I do think it is about some kind of formalised program as well um, that we need some formalised programs, we need not just women entrepreneurs sponsoring other entrepreneurs but male entrepreneurs also doing it. I know that the women's, um, the equivalent of Aki for women, so the small medium organisations groups have now started up some sponsorship and mentoring programs for women entrepreneurs. So they're the things that I think need to be encouraged because it's strong businesses like you, which are female-led, that come into the value chains and supply chains of large organisations, that will also create, create change in our nation as well.
7: Can I also just raise that question to Renee Ryan um, with your
5: STEM background? Um, how, yeah, I think, I mean, it, there's obviously a lot of disciplines in the STEM background. Um, you know, some like maths and engineering and IT, there is really a, a lack of women coming in. Um, there's a lack of uh, girls being interested in in physics, you know, for instance in certain subjects at high school, so we don't even have the talent pool kind of coming through I think that's a bit different in in the biology um, biological sciences and medical sciences where we do have women so I think we really have to encourage um, younger all younger children to be more interested in science I would say, but particularly young women um, and really enable them to to choose those subjects at school and want to, to do science and kind of um, you know, then, then go on to study the, the physical and natural sciences at university to try and encourage them to get through.
7: Thank you very much. Just for a little bit of self-promotion, it's Ventured Oz <laughs> on Twitter. And um, uh, we're hoping to start recording in the next week and we're actually doing it here at Sydney University. Oh,
8: Sorry.
0: fantastic. Congratulations. Appreciate that. Thank Great. you very much. Thanks, Michelle.
8: Next. Hi, my name's Rani Narula. I am from Baker McKenzie. I really liked, Liz, your comment about the idea of organisations moving to um, put the talent at the centre and have the work wrap around them. Coming from a corporate law firm, which is in what is always described as a challenging competitive commercial market, client service is like a critical part of the values of the firm I work in and all major firms and small firms, I'd say, in the market, and not just law firms, but professional services in general. How do you foresee client service, which so often is considered to correspond to access to your professional Mm. service provider, sitting alongside the idea of the work, wrapping around the talent in our
3: current work environment? Mm. It is, on one sense, some professional services firms, and they have some of the lowest levels of female partner numbers. I mean, I graduated in 84... Um, I became a partner in the mid-90s. 25% of a law firm, and I was in a large law firm with about 800 lawyers, um, 25% at that stage were female. I think we're now back around 20%. So this won't naturally fix itself. It needs some Mm -hmm. systemic intervention. Um, One of the good things that I've seen is, and coming back to Telstra, they went, there all roles flex. They said, okay, well, if we're embracing flexibility here, what about organisations in our supply chain like law firms, professional services firms. So they actually went out and had a structured dialogue about how the requests that they made could also enhance the flexibility that law firms might be able to offer their staff. And I think those dialogues are very, very important because I know when I was a partner um, in my law firm, corporate partners said to me, well, it's all well and good, this flexibility bill, never work here in the corporate group. Our clients won't allow it. So I actually went out and I interviewed the top 20 clients of a firm and I said, look, you know, we've acted for you on this transaction. What did you think about it? What did you think about these three lawyers? Oh, they were fabulous. Um, did you know they were in a flexible work arrangement? No, actually, we never knew that. Um, so when I actually interrogated into it, it, the clients weren't the problem per se, provided there's some innovation around um, how the service is delivered, the work practice. So I think it's easy to say, well, our clients won't allow it sorry that's just an excuse. We need to look behind that and I think we need to um, work to understand that most of its advice and the transactional services we deliver, uh, they're delivered in teams. Teams need some redundancy built into them so that people can have flexibility. So. Uh, so I do think there's great potential for law firms and professional services. The other thing I'd say about it is if, that fir- if a firm decided to move tomorrow, they could. They're not a publicly listed organisation, by and large. They're, the f- uh, business model is in, within the control of the partners. If the partner's decided tomorrow to change that, they could. So my view is in some areas it's a um, failure of political will to change. And I think the big buyers of legal services need to step it up a bit and say, look, we want to deal with firms who are on the same journey that we're on, so what are you doing to embrace flexibility in your organisation? Thank you. Great. Thanks, Randy. Great question.
9: Thank you. I speak as an old Marxist feminist grandma who (laughs) who took the golden bullet from this place as a teacher in 2007 In 2008, the global financial crisis came along and wiped out a large lump of my super. In reply to what the panel said, I think the problem with emphasising gender equality in occupations is that you can very easily end up with a society which looks like the United States, which is far more violent and unequal than our own, and far more financially uncertain, driven primarily by lawyers and financial operatives in the shadows. I think the way forward is for the panel. If you're going to talk about disruption, it's a bit like talking about innovation. We want to know what we're innovating towards. And I suggest the most useful thing that we could do now, particularly people like Shane Houston, Elizabeth Broderick and the members of the panel is to invite the Pope to Canberra to visit the National Botanical Gardens, because the National Botanical Gardens are the obvious starting place to start implementation of his encyclical on climate change and inequality, Our Common Home because it is only by coming to grips with our Catholic history, which has exemplified Love Him or Hate Him in Tony Abbott as our Prime Minister, along with the other alumni of this university, will we begin to actually tackle the problems which we need to tackle, which the popes, a succession of popes, have actually tried to tackle, not helped very much by everybody else. Okay, thank you, Carol. So,
0: can I ask people to, to respond and say, so the question, I think, in essence was, what are we uh, seeking equality for, or what are we moving toward?
3: I mean, we're seeking equality because more equal societies, and that's potential, gender equality is a starting point. It's not the end point, but it's the starting point. More equal, um, in more equal societies, everyone lifts the u s is a very unequal society for a whole variety of reasons, but I absolutely agree there needs to be a focus on climate change if that was the other part of the um, of the question i 'm not sure i 'd be asking the Pope to speak on gender equality, given the Catholic Church um, but i would I, in terms of climate change, but let's face it, climate change has a very gendered impact. For many, when I go into the United Nations, I hear from particularly African nations that um, families are having to pull their girls out of school because they have to walk further to collect firewood and water. They can no longer have an education because that's the work of girls. So, you know what, women from African nations are really angry about climate change um, because they see rich companies, countries that are exacerbating it and they're paying the price, particularly their girls. Mm. Also, in other nations where women are not taught to swim um, and we look at the impact of national natural disasters and everything else, so climate change has a very gendered impact. I don't know if that answers the question. but I think that was a good job. Thank <laughs> you. Uh,
0: I'm absolutely closing the speaking list at the woman in the white shirt and can I ask our questioners to keep it brief, if you can, so that we can get all of you to, to um, have a say. Thank you.
10: Good evening, panellists. My name is James Goswell, alumni of the university and currently working for the Commonwealth Bank. First of all, Liz, congratulations with all your work. It's fantastic to see what you've achieved. The Male Champions of Change is is a great initiative and we have Ian Narev leading the Commonwealth Bank and he's a great spokesperson for the cause. My concern is that these leaders do such a good job of speaking on these issues that they cast a very long shadow Mm. and I, I worry that... The targets that you speak about and the strong commitments that are um, given such publicity by these men of influence allow others, uh, other men, to hang their hat on those targets and perhaps slip back from the conversation. So I worry about the impact of that has on the inclusion of all men in the debate. And so I'd put that to you, Liz, whether you, you share that concern or your thoughts on it. And very quickly to Dalton, what I'd like to see is a disruption come from the millennials. I have this image of men who, like Hugh Jackman, have the presence and the confidence to celebrate women, you know, right through from every day as he does. And I wanted to put to you how you see that happening at universities, um, you know, when men are young and not yet in the corporate world, and how you see us changing the attitudes of these men so they can go on and and be those Hugh Jackmans in organisations.
3: Thank you, James. Just one quick comment then. Um, Look, I take your point. Um, because these are highly visible leaders and maybe I'm a less powerful man, so what can I do? Um, But one of the things men in organisations like the Commonwealth Bank and other organisations which are male champions of change organisations talk to me about is because our male CEO is out talking about this, I now have licence as a man to engage in a discussion around this, whether I believe in it or not. So I think that's a really positive byproduct. The other thing I would say is if we can just do one thing it would be to ask the 50-50, if not, why not question. Wherever we find ourselves, whether it's in this audience, whether it's in the Commonwealth Bank, whether it's in the C-suite you know, or on the graduate round, we're always asking, if women make up 50% of a population, why am I not seeing them and the graduate intake on the board at senior executive level? Because I think when both men and women ask that, we start to identify the barriers.
6: Um, so, I guess, to be a human, Hugh Jackman in the new corporations, um, I guess, from, from my point of view as a student, the number one thing I really think that people of my age really should be engaging with is this education. And, and I, I say that in a very deep sense, in the sense that you have an intimate understanding of different perspectives, and that that actually informs how you operate. Not a simple, oh, here's the textbook about, oh, yeah, if we learn more about gender equality, that's good. That's what everyone else is doing. But an actual intrinsic understanding that this is the way society is moving, that it should have moved for a while, and that to really take pride in that fact and actually act to the knowledge that you have. I mean, beyond that, it would be using economic, the economic power of even coming from University of Sydney, you come with a bit of a uh, good qualification, so you actually can influence a lot of how um, firms recruit, and so I guess I'm not proposing collective <laughs> actions or anything like that, but at least trying to influence the culture in that sense that this is an important thing, this isn't a thing that we just simply pay lip service to, and that that's informed by a deep understanding
1: of the real facts. I right. say one thing right. Sure. One of the things that I think we've got to guard against is the cup-half-empty approach. And sure, people who are in leadership roles might cast long shadows, but the one thing that I've seen in this institution, in the Aboriginal space, and I think it would apply equally in in the gender space, is that if if you give people an opportunity, you'll find these outbreaks of commitment and engagement. And it seems to me that one of the things that, that, that leaders have to do is actually encourage others in our institution to join the team. You know, we can see our Vice-Chancellor out there doing all that good stuff. When was the last time somebody walked up to the Vice-Chancellor and said, you know, as a man, I think what you're doing is great and I want to join, what can I do? And the more men do that, the more our leaders will not be alone. The shadow won't be a shadow that falls over people. It will be a shadow that embraces people. And I think that's what we've got to encourage men
11: to do.
0: Okay, great. Thanks, Shane. Our next questioner.
11: Thank you for your speech. Uh, I'm Takashi Kawashima, uh, Japan Self-Defence De- uh, Self Force personnel, uh, now visiting fellow or Australian, uni- uh, Australian Human Centre at the University of New South Wales. And one of my research is gender issue, so I'd like to ask about the international aspect of Australian uh, defense force gender policy. Uh, I understand Australia gained a lot of, ex- a lot of experience and lessons learned from Afghanistan campaign. and. Uh, it's probably helped Australia read uh, making United Nations and uh, NATO's uh, Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Mm. But uh, is there any particular factor that made uh, Australia take uh, globally reading rule in women's participation? and uh, protection in peace mission uh, even nato to which australia is not member to
3: okay thank you Liz, did you want to... Yeah, I'll quickly answer that. And, you know, I want to just acknowledge the work that the Japanese Prime Minister is doing to drive gender equality. It's the third plank of his economic rejuvenation strategy. I've just been up in Tokyo a couple of weeks ago, and it was very inspiring to be up there, seeing a Prime Minister speak so strongly about women's empowerment. Um, In relation to the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, which we call... Security Council Resolution 1325, and the work Australia's been doing, we have launched a national plan which says, and it recognises that if we want to end sexual violence in conflict areas, we need to change the culture of militaries. Because in that moment when a man, and it is ordinarily a man, that soldier makes a decision either to be a perpetrator or a protector The culture in which he finds himself in the military will be very determinative. So a lot of our women, peace and security um, strategy is directed at the work that I did as sex discrimination commissioner, which was to change the cultures of militaries so that both men and women can be equal partners and where there is a culture of inclusion that everyone's included. So that's the work that Australia has been working. As you correctly say, we're not part of NATO, but we're a partner nation with NATO. So a lot of our strategies have been kind of proposed to other NATO nations as potential strategies to follow in the Women and Peace and Security agenda. And you know what, it's been so fabulous to see Australia step up on this and to see some of that work adopted up by NATO nations. Great, thank you very much, Liz.
11: Thanks for your thank
12: question. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm an alumni of Sydney Uni. I graduated with a science degree and I double majored in physiology and computer science. I never let the fact that I was female hold myself back. Uh, I was the only female in the advanced computer science stream the year I was in it. And I've worked as a programmer um, and in IT organisations for many years where sometimes in small organisations I've been the only female. In recent years, I, I don't plan to have children and I've made no secret of that. But then in recent years, I've just felt that it's been difficult to get to the management, management level. Mm-hmm. And I guess as, as a female, sometimes I wonder, is this partly because I'm female and working in a male-centric organisation, or is it just actually myself? And there's that element of doubt, and I just wonder what, um, what you think about that.
5: Yeah, I, I mean, I'd just like to say, of course, that, you know, I did talk about women taking time out of careers and things for childbearing, but it is not just women that have mm-hmm. children. Um, there are many women that don't have children that also face the same barriers, and it's not you, <laughs> and it's not your confidence, it's the system, and I think that's the thing, mm-hmm. is that um, women, you know, sometimes the people that are leading, especially in a very male-dominated industry like you're in, they don't see leadership or they don't recognise leadership in women and that's the point is because you are most probably different to them and you have different characteristics and a different way of interacting with people um, so it's, it's really not just women that have caring duties either for children or sick parents, I mean people have life and there's lots of things you know, that, that take up our time and that we have responsibilities for in life, so um, yeah, it's, it's not you at all and it is it is the people that aren't recognising that you're a leader and that you can move up into those positions and I don't know, it comes back to the whole thing. Why should you have to fix it and why should you have to be heard? But I I don't know. I don't know the solution. Yeah, and I absolutely
3: agree with you. I can tell you it's not you. Um, The fact is, when you're not part of a dominant grouping in an organisation, you will be less confident because we're all social beings, we want to be part of the in-crowd and when you're sitting outside, and I'm sure Shane can also have experience with this, when you're sitting outside, you become less confident because you're not part of the in-crowd. That's why you have that self-doubt. You know, there's ways you can come around that. One is to connect with those good men in the organisation and share your story of exclusion. That's what I'm hearing. Share your story of exclusion. Let them know how you feel, how it makes you feel, and ask them to help you step up on that. So they're strategies um, like that. The other strategy, of course, is to take yourself to an organisation, because let's face it, women in technology are very, you know, um, it's a very competitive market for them. We want good women in technology. So the option is to take yourself to a organisation that actually does recognise that there needs to be some active and intentional inclusion of women so that both women and men can thrive. And that might be a male champion change organisation, it might be many other organisations, but, you know, all power to you. I did computing science as well, and so I I know where you're coming from.
5: And also, I, I mean, I don't know if you've done this, but go and tell the yeah. people that are in power, that you want to, a leadership position, you want a management position, because they might not think that you want it because they judge you in a certain way. But go and say, hey, tap them on the shoulder. I want to do this. I want more responsibility. And, you know, mm-hmm. see how you go. That can be your change for today, your commitment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. And our
0: last question. Hi, uh, my name's Holly Kendall. Uh, I'm a human rights consultant. Uh, one of the things that I think is key to change and... Plays on what we've been talking about changing the system is changing how men perceive work and I recently read that in Norway the gender pay gap has been reduced by offering, legislating 10 weeks paternity leave that has to be taken by the man, it can't be changed. Uh, Elizabeth, in your work have you come across other strategies that change the way men behave that can increase, increase gender equity uh, and I thought the other panellists might like to talk some of, about some of the disruptive strategies in place at Sydney University to promote gender equity.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not about working with women. It's not about fixing women. This is about working with men and masculinity and how men see work as well as women. So we, I mean, in relation to the paid parental leave scheme and, you know, there's potential changes mooted, we don't know where that's going or what's happening, but if you were to change the scheme, I think you'd be doing it um, with a greater allocation for men or supporting partners in same-sex relationships on what we call a use-it-or-lose-it basis, which is similar to the Scandinavian countries. So the idea is if the man doesn't use it, it doesn't revert to the woman. It just gets lost into the ether. So it's an incentive for men to step up with care. And I think, you know, if I could only do one thing to shift and promote gender equality in this nation, it would be the better sharing of paid and unpaid work between men and women. That would shift so many things. It'd fix the pay gap. You'd have you know, women um, being more in economic power and men having greater, um, you know, deeper relationships in families and caring. There's so many great things that would emanate from that. Thanks. I'm going to ask the rest of the panel to address that question as well.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, I just really agree with everything there. I think, I mean, one thing that has really allowed me to really focus on my career has been a husband that has is really the prime caregiver of my children, and he works for a bank, um, St George Bank, and they've been absolutely amazing. He mm-hmm. had three months full-time paternity leave when I came back to work. Um, and that they, you know, I think that kind of thing and, and making it acceptable for men... And, and he is one of the few men that do has accessed it, though. I mean, it's still... I think society has to really embrace um the fact that men should have the right to care for their children and most of them really enjoy it when they get the opportunity. But it's you know, he still gets grief from his friends, you know, and it's this idea of you're under the thumb, you know, Renee's off working and you're at home looking after the kids. But it's like he, he wants to do it. He actually enjoys it. Um he's not as career driven as I am. And that's the whole point. Why should the male be the one that you know, a lot of men might not want to have the careers and be the primary Breadwinner, they might be very happy to, to pass that off to their partner. So, I really think as well that a big thing that can happen is that society completely shifts um, its idea that women are the primary caregiver, the, the you know the person that runs the household, that does all the things with the kids, and you know thinks about all the other family, extended family, and things like that. Because it's such a huge responsibility, and when you're trying to juggle that with a career, it is really difficult. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. Dalton.
6: Um, yep. So uh, just going from your point, actually. Uh, uh, when I enter the workforce, I would actually look forward to being, a- when I hopefully have kids, um, being able to actually spend some time with them and not have it as a, as a stigma, because I think that's quite important. I mean, personally, I value that very highly, just the ability to be able to play with your children. Um, but from-, from... That's a bit of
0: work there, too. <laughs> oh. <laughs> play,
6: and work. Play,
2: play and work.
6: Play and work, play and work you've got you to earn the plan, I get that, <laughs> with, with sleepless nights. Um, but in terms of what the university from a student perspective is doing, I guess, um, if you look at uh, vibrant student life, so things like U, uh, USU programs, SRC, I think we're quite aware of the issue, and I'm sure there's always more to be done, but we're quite, I, I feel like we have a pretty strong grapple hold. I mean, what, I guess, would be better to disrupt it would be potentially more resources channeling to initiatives like this. Um, I mean, on the point previously about uh, female entrepreneurship, I think that would be a cool area for a bit more disruption because we do have incubate programs, et cetera. But if you look at the composition of a lot of those teams that very male engineering dominated, and I feel that perhaps maybe um, some of that systematic funneling of here's a great opportunity but let's ensure that you know the other half of the university has access to it um could help i mean sports nina can talk to that a bit more um but sports wise we're very effective in terms of how how like they beat the guys in terms of the amount of medals and stuff that we win
4: (laughs) i guess i can take it (laughs) um yeah so actually recently i'm a Sydney university hockey player and the success we've had this year from women's sport has just been kind of crazy we've had a number of wins across a lot of the sports but the funny thing is we don't have sponsorship Mm -hmm. no female sports have sponsorship and as I said I'm a hockey player and I have played national under 21s um, represent Australia the junior world cup but the the fact is we as athletes especially female athletes have to act as professionals but we're not paid for it Mm -hmm. so you face a choice between that balance actually between academics and sport and One thing I can say about what the university is doing in part of Sydney University itself, the business school in conjunction with the elite athlete program, is we as female athletes have the opportunity to be financially supported and study at this amazing institution. But the scary thing is, and I'm trying to push this at the moment, female sports needs a corporate sponsor. Why haven't we gone out as a band of, we have Olympic athletes here, and Olympic athletes in teams and individual sports, and at the moment I'm trying to push through Sydney University Sport and Fitness, We need to get a corporate sponsor on board. So yeah, from a sports perspective, I think we still have a long way to go. But on the other side, from a university-wide perspective, as I said, I'm the president of the Network of Women, and the support we've had from the university, especially the business school, has been unwavering. So it's almost sponsorship, in a way, from a uh, kind of broader level. And I think the university is setting us up with the opportunities and knowledge to go out there. It's just that gap of what happens once you get to the institution. I think that's in what we've been trying to discuss tonight.
0: Shane?
1: It, I'm an old communitarian at heart. <laughs> um, I'll stress the old. Um, and you didn't ask the old people questions yeah. that you asked the young people, but that's OK. Um, is that, is a that, ex- is that Yes, I think it is. We, <laughs> should, make, just... we should talk <laughs> about <laughs> <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, the thing that, that I've always found um, frustrating is this perspective that working is more valuable than other functions in life? And why is it that we elevate the notion of working above parenting? Why is it that we elevate working above compassion? Why is it that we elevate these... How, how do we reconcile these often conflicting values in a way Which enable people to live a life that is of such a quality that they want and it heads in the direction that they want. And it seems to me that that one of the things that we could do is to actually elevate the role of parenting so that um, everybody sees it as a badge of honour not I earn $400,000 a year, sort of thing, but I'm a parent. And if you do that, it actually starts to shift some of the priorities in everyone's life. And I think that might be a good thing.
3: Look, I couldn't agree more with that. I think we've devalued parenting, we've devalued mothering. But the reality is in the world that we live, and that's why system change is so important, because who carries the financial impost of care? It sits squarely on the shoulders of women. I mean, when I look at the data there, women have half the retirement savings of men. Part of that is a superannuation scheme is designed on a male life trajectory. It's about continuous work for 40 years. That's what will deliver some kind of reasonable superannuation. So I absolutely agree with you. Um, How are we going to change that picture? Is it about trying at some level to attach a financial value to care through a caring credit scheme. That's the way the UK have gone, many other nations have gone that way so that when women retire um, and they will largely and I think 70% will retire onto the pension that they can cash in a premium layer on top of that which recognises their contribution to care and to the society. It's not really the answer, I don't think. But it does... I, I think it's not do, only do we need some discussion, but we need some bold ideas.
1: Um, I don't disagree. And it's like um, I always was always challenged by, um, by in the health sector um, that... Um, People who work in remote locations tend to be young. They tend to stay short periods of time. And the structure of those workplaces actually act as a disincentive to long-term employment for women. Um, There isn't the structural um, um, arrangements in place. We could, we should reconfigure employment to provide a better framework which would allow for the sorts of things that you've spoken about. And I don't think we have all the answers yet. But unless we're bold enough to take the economic model and say it needs a good shake, it needs to be disrupted. What are the things that we can do? We will always have what we've got. And guess what?
0: Emma? Thank you. Um, thanks for that question. Thank you all for your contributions with your questions. I might ask the panel to just stay here for a moment because I know that um, the Vice-Chancellor, Professor Michael Spence, wants to come and have a chat to you. I've been told that I'm not allowed to read his biography and I'm to introduce him simply as the Vice-Chancellor. So I guess we say, uh, this is Michael. He's from Sydney and he's here to help. (laughs) Um, Welcome, Michael. I'm just going to sit down for a tick and let you take the stage. Thanks.
13: Thanks very much. It is my um, great privilege to thank the panel and particularly Liz for... Um, this evening. I go to a lot of events where issues to do with women's work and women's education are discussed. And at some point in the evening, some man always says, well, I have daughters. And it always seems to me to be a bit pathetic, really, Um, rather like people saying, well, some of my best friends are. (laughs) And this morning, as I was thinking through that, I thought, I wonder why they do it. Why on earth do do people say that? And I thought, because daughters are dreams. Those of you who are parents know that you think about the future through what might be possible for your children. And who wouldn't want a future in which anything is possible for them? And this place, this place is a way of dreaming about the future. This place is a way of imagining a future in which anything is possible for all of us. Well, this university was founded on that dream. This university was founded with a vision of inclusion. You know, it was to be the first university where entrance was to be on the basis of academic merit alone and not, as in all other universities at the time, on the basis also of a religious and property test. And yet, Dreams have blind spots. So this university wasn't open to women or to Aborigines. Dreams have blind spots. We were amongst the first in the world to admit women, but still only 28% of the professoriate are women. Dreams have blind spots. We have a world-class gender studies programme, the Women in Work programme in the business school, and people working on women's issues throughout the university... And yet I met just last week a woman whose faith commitment involves her wearing a head covering, who three times had been asked by senior academic staff in her, um, in her faculty why she did it, because they found her clothing, in their words, personally confronting. How can that happen in a place built on a dream to include? Well, it seems to me, if we're going to be true to the founder's vision, if we're going to be true to the vision that we have not just for our own children, but for the children of our community more generally, then we need to be honest about our blind spots. That's why we've committed to doing the sexual harassment survey and potentially taking the reputational damage that that entails. It's why we've committed to setting targets and keeping ourselves accountable against them. And in order to be true to the dream, we need critical friends. We need people who come with us on the journey and point out the blind spots, point the places where we exclude the disabled, point out the places where we exclude women, point out the places where we exclude those simply whose vision of the good is different and thereby impoverish our own work and fail in our mission as an institution. Well, Liz has been a great friend to the university in pointing out our blind spots and encouraging us on the journey. And not only a great friend to the university, but a great friend to Australia. And as Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner, has done a remarkable work in putting the nation's blind spots right at the centre of the national conversation and keeping us honest to a vision of what it might mean to be a genuinely egalitarian society. So I'd like to thank her on behalf of the university, and if I may do so rather pompously, on behalf of our country as a whole, and also thank the members of the panel for what this evening has been a really stimulating discussion, Shane talked about not having the glass half full. And it is true. 100 years ago, women couldn't have pro- married women couldn't hold property. 150 years ago, married women didn't, um, women didn't have the vote, etc., etc. We've come a long way. And yet, and yet, we've got to have people like you pointing out our blind spots and keeping us true to the vision on which this place was founded. Thank you, panel. Thank you, Liz, for what I have found an extremely stimulating evening.
3: Thank you.